Yeah. Hi, everybody. I am Kathy, and I am recovering one day at a time in the Worldwide Fellowship of Al-Anon. Um, I just like to start to say that it's a real for me. It's really a privilege uh, to have been asked to uh, speak at this very first River Valley uh, Roundup. It means a lot to me. Um, it means a lot to me mainly because I was asked by um, my friend John, who uh, I went to grade school with. And um, every time that I see John at a convention or somewhere, it, it just really fills my heart with gratitude that I have been able to, um, that I was given the grace to recognize my need for this program. Um, and that as a result of that, I've been able to recover with men and women who have meant so much to me, some which, you know, some of whom date back to when I was uh, really a young child. And uh, the longer I'm around, the longer I begin to see um, what I always suspected, which was the infinite wisdom of a loving and gracious God. So um, <clears throat> thank you. Um, thank you for, for that honor. John. Um, <clears throat> you know, the other thing that, I, well, the, I just left my sponsor um, yesterday, um, really because, through, through uh, this program and through the grace of God and through sponsor and many of these men and women who have been with me. Uh, yesterday, I celebrated 20 years um, in the Fellowship of Al-Anon. <laughs> I know they're going to have a surprise party for me sometime, but it's a surprise. <laughs> I was thinking last night when I was here, and I remembered the theme, which is we are people who are normally uh, would not mix. I was thinking in my own life how, how true that was, because when I heard Don um, begin his, his lead last night, it struck me that um, Three, three years ago at Easter time, I was in uh, Snohomish, Washington with uh, six of my children on a ranch uh, for recovering alcoholics and heroin addicts, and we were in a sweat lodge on Holy Saturday. And <clears throat> as I was sure that this, you know, I mean, it, it was getting hotter and hotter in this small little tent, and I was sure I was suffocating to death, I thought to myself, how did I get here? <laughs> you know, how did I get here? And and sometimes when I'm in places, and it's always as a result of this program. Um, four weeks ago, I was at this beautiful, wonderful, big birthday party uh, for a woman that I sponsor. The only I was the only straight woman in the whole house, you know. And I think, how do you get to a place like this? I mean, you, and you get there because that's where recovery takes you. It just take it has taken me. To places um, where, where any other, you know, if I'd taken any other path, if I had not fallen hopelessly in love with an alcoholic, I never would have had the privilege to live the kind of life that I have that I have that I have led. So, um, <clears throat> having said that, um, I can just say, um, starting out for me. Uh, I did not grow up in an alcoholic family. I don't know that I grew up in a, in a, in a normal family, but I, I did not grow up in an alcoholic family. I did grow up with two parents who, have, who are very, very funny people. And, um, you know, the background of being Irish Catholic, I never really know how important that is to anything, but it was important to me because I grew up with a, with a background that really led... Um, 
me to a lot of conclusions about life and how life should be led. One of the big ones from my generation was you just simply didn't complain. Um, nobody ever asked me how I felt as a kid. Nobody really cared how I felt as a kid. I was raised by parents who came out of the Depression, World War II, and nobody really was concerned about how I felt about anything, which was fine. But there was a message for me, it was never spoken, but it certainly was there, and that was you just learned to suck things up. I mean, you just learned to take what life dealt you, you made the most of it, and you just went on. Um, in my background, there was a lot of years of education by nuns who really reinforced a lot of that idea about, you know, suffering silently. And um, that's just, um, you know, that's just where I came from. But also along with that, in my particular family, it was always noted that humor was really, really important. I mean, if things got bad, you faced it with humor. I mean, you, you, you made it very, very light, and you, and you just made jokes about it. And in years later, when I found myself in uh, a really what I considered to be a very tight spot, my way out of it generally was to try to make light of it, to create it into a really funny story that I then would package and share with my friends and my family so that nobody ever really knew what was going on with me. I think for years I lived with uh, high anxiety and a constant low level of great grief without really knowing it. So, uh, you know, born and raised in Cincinnati, um, you know, came out of what I considered to be, you know, a very, very good place, a very solid place. But I was always told the importance of how things looked, you know, of making sure that... Um, you know, my mother would often say, oh, you know, what would the neighbor, what will the neighbors think? My father could be very loud at times and really, really funny and bizarre. My mother would always say, Jack, what will the neighbors think? So somewhere along the line, it became important to me what other people think. Sometimes when I'm at um, Al-Anon meetings and I'll hear people say, well, you know, we and we, we're addicted to the alcoholic. I never felt like I was addicted to the alcoholic, but I always felt that I was addicted to approval. I was always addicted to being right, doing the right thing, addiction to approval. Don't create waves. Make sure that the universe remains in balance and in harmony, and that was my job. <laughs> Somebody's got to do it. It fell to me. <clears throat> but I was always attracted to people who broke the rules. And I really, to tell you the truth, I still am. I was in Oklahoma City in January, and it was a huge convention. And the guy who was doing Tony's job, he kept making these announcements, turn off your cell phones and vibrators. What, vibrators? <laughs> oh, anyway. I was at an AA convention. Anyway, so um, <clears throat> turn off your cell phones, turn off your cell phones. And he got more desperate with each talk, you know. I mean, with each with each meeting, he got more and more desperate because invariably somebody's cell phone always went off. See, now I love that. I love that. I love that somebody doesn't turn off their cell phone. I don't know why. I did just, I love it. <clears throat> when my oldest boy um, was in AA for a, a minute, uh, one of his... Uh, <clears throat> 
<laughs> one of his aunts gave him a copy of, uh, you know, the big book. And um, I was in his room straightening up, and there was the big book. And, you know, I just picked it up just to, you know, flip through it or to read a passage or whatever. And when I opened it, he had carved out of the center of it. The, all, the, whole, the whole contents of the book were gone. And in it were the second set of keys for two cars, you know, on the property. I mean, he was 15. I always wondered how that kid was getting out with cars. I could never prove it. But I knew my car was gone because in the morning it would be splattered with mud and I hadn't gone. You know, I kind of love that in a person. That, you know, you think, it's pretty clever. I mean, that's pretty clever. What a great... What a great thing. And then later when they threw him, the courts threw him into uh, Emerson North, which at the time had a unit for adolescents. Um, he wanted to stop at the Crone Conservatory to get a plant for his room. And I thought, oh, isn't that nice? He's developing his feminine side. That's really cool. But what he did, of course, was he took that pot and put pot in the pot. So it actually he was... Now that's good. You know, that shows me that there's, there's hope for... For those kids. <clears throat> anyway, always like those kids. I always still do, you know. Love the one. Um, I have one sister-in-law whenever I go over to Hyde Park Plaza. She's always parked in the fire lane. I say, Mary, what are you doing parked in the fire lane? She goes, well, that rule's not for me. <clears throat> I would never park in the fire lane. Uh, not me. See, I, I follow the rules. I follow the rules. And I suppose Al-Anon really works best for those people who follow the rules and life blows up in your face. That's the best way I can put it, you know? Because I spent years of my marriage thinking, why is this happening to me? I followed the rules. I did what I was told to do. I am responsible. Why is this happening to me? And I've been given a program that allows me to live with the questions. I'm given a program that allows me to live with questions. Because if I had the answers, I would not need the men and women that I need today, and I would not need these 12 steps and 12 traditions. I'd have the answers. But it's when I've been asked to live in the question that this program really supports um, supports and, com- and gives me great, great comfort. <clears throat> when I met my husband... Um, you know, I was thinking today, and I, somebody said to me last night, do you get nervous before you talk? And I said, you know, my, I get nervous because I'm so afraid I'm going to go on and on and on forever. I'm a teacher, and when I say to the kids, get out your notebooks, we're going to take notes, someone, a plant in the classroom will say, hey, Miss Seekin, what about Palestine? And then they know that, you know, we're just, there went the notes. I mean, so i got to be careful. <clears throat> anyway. So when I met my husband, he was just one of those guys, you know, that that I'm always attracted to. He just was a rule breaker. He didn't care about the rules, and he didn't care what you thought about him, and um, and he never did what I did, which was always censored my my speech. I mean, I always paid quite very close attention to what uh, I said to you because um, I believe that it could make or break your day. And so <clears throat> if you were in a bad mood, I knew it was my job to put you in a good mood. And if you were sad, I knew it was my job to make you to make you glad. So, you know, I gave myself over the years a lot of power for you, for you. Now, where it gets really twisted for someone like me is I don't really pay attention to how things are with me. 
because I'm pretty convinced I've done such a job of, of looking good and being right that I've convinced myself that I am pretty good and that I am almost always right. So I'm worried about you now. My focus is on you. So I meet this t- wonderfully exciting, funny, handsome, romantic Marine Corps pilot. And I just know, going out with him a few times, that this is the man that I want to spend the rest of my life with. One time we went on a date where it involved his renting a plane. Now, I don't even know if at that time I'd ever even been on a plane. But we went down to Lunkin Airport, and he rented one of those little Piper Cubs or whatever they are, little Cherokee things. It's a little two-seater plane. And we were, we, we, that was the date. I mean, we went flying up over the Ohio River. And at one point he turned to me and he said, do you know what a stall is? <laughs> and I said, no, I don't know what a stall is. And he said, this is a stall. And he turned the plane off, you know, and then he, you know, heads for the river. And then we're doing this little twist. Now, you know, this was the thing with my husband. <laughs> Whenever he was be around, my, my heart would beat really, really fast. And I thought it was because I was in love with him. <laughs> Somebody told me it was really because I was so afraid of him. I mean, you know, you just never knew what he was going to do next. But when I was 20 years old... That, to me, was really neat. And when you go on a date with somebody that's stalled over the Ohio River, you know, going out to a movie and dinner just doesn't seem like a lot of fun anymore. I mean, what's that? I mean, so, you know, I I just really got hooked into that. I really got hooked into the romanticism, I suppose, of living with a very, very exciting man. Um, <clears throat> so that when he made the announcement, which I was unprepared for, when he made the announcement that we were going to get married, I thought, well, we probably were. You know, we probably were anyway. I didn't know that we were going to, but he announced it in front of his family at dinner, and I and I was, was never one at that time in my life to say, well, now, wait a minute, you know, we really haven't talked about that. You know, I have my, um, what are they, I have my boundary. I mean, who, who knew that language? Not me. I was like, okay, you know, we'll do that. But <clears throat> that set up a pattern for me, which was not unusual, which is this. I'll let you make those decisions so I can never really be responsible. I will let you make those decisions for me. So then if everything does go wrong, it won't be my fault. It'll be your fault. It was your idea. Where do you want to go for dinner? I don't care wherever you want to go. So that when we go and the food is lousy, I didn't pick it. You picked it. I mean, just something that simple, you know, is a pattern that I had developed long before I met my husband. You know, that just always, you know, letting somebody else figure it out because it relieved me of a lot of responsibility. But mainly what it did is it relieved me of ever ever having to worry about being wrong. You can always be right when you let somebody else mark the way. So we got married, and uh, we knew he had to go to Vietnam. Um, <clears throat> and he ended up going to Vietnam pretty quickly. We were married in January, and he got his orders in um, March. And um, he left for Vietnam at the end of April, early May. And... Um, and I couldn't wait for him to leave. Now, that'll tell you that um, <clears throat> how it was for me. Very, very quickly in my marriage, I knew that I was in over my head. I mean, it, it was really quick. I, I guess that I thought, I, 
My mother and father had, till the day my dad died, this wonderful camaraderie. They had this wonderful relationship with one another. Now, my mother is this explosive redhead. I mean, and she still is today. I mean, she's great, but you just have to... You just have to know how to take her. I mean, she can. She just got fiery redhead. Uh, I say to people, she looks like Maureen O'Hara, but you know, if you know her, she really, she really is John Wayne. <clears throat> I mean, she's tough. She's really tough. I've been with her, you know, in places where you know people have said, you know, can I have a dollar? Or can you know, I need some money, and she says, get a job. And I'm like, mom, you know, I mean, she's going to get us jumped one of these days. But she's just really fiery. But my, but, but my father would never fight with her, ever. I mean, if she would start about this or about that, he would just say, Agnes, come over here and let me smother you with kisses. And that was the end of it. I mean, they never <laughs> fought. So when I got married and things would happen, I, I would look back. I mean, I've heard you know, men and women saying I came from an alcoholic home, and that's what I knew, and that's what seemed to be normal. Not for me. I knew right away what I was living with wasn't normal, and there were days when I thought it would have been better for me had I grown up with great... At least I would have known how to fight. I mean, at least I would have had those skills prepared. I was just... I just really didn't know what to do with someone that I considered to be unreasonable. I didn't know how to to deal with that. And so I, I spent years trying every different method I could think of. I would try to be hard-nosed, and I could never maintain that stance. I would try to be very quiet and calm, and that just used to eat away at me. I just never knew what, how to make him act the way that I sh- thought he should be acting. His drinking never really stood out in my mind because we were in the Marine Corps, for God's sakes. I mean, everybody in the Marines seemed to drink like that, except... When he drank, things became dangerous for somebody. And what I learned from that was, number one, to count how much he was drinking, and two, to lay low. Because if I counted, then I would know how to act. You see, my actions were always in relation to how he was. If he was getting louder and uglier, then I knew to get quieter and to try to disappear. If he was getting funny, then I would try to take advantage of his being funny and be funny too. I mean, everything over a period of time became, he became my focus. How was he going to be so I knew what was safe for me to be? And it's just a crazy way to live. I mean, I always say, I, I for years, I thought I was adjusting to marriage. And what I was really trying to adjust to was alcoholism. And there's, there's just really no healthy way to do that. Um, but I tried. So by the time he got his orders to go to Vietnam, I had become so exhausted by trying to figure things out, by trying to cover, by trying to fix, by pretending. I was so thrilled when that squadron left. I mean, I, I was just so relieved. And I came back to Cincinnati convinced that I would have this year to figure out what was wrong with him. The very first place I went was to the priest that had married us. And as I was walking out the door of my parents' home, my mother said to me, I hope you're not going to tell him anything personal. Because that's how I was raised. You know, you just don't talk about those things. You suck it in, you rise above it, and you, you just go on with your life. You just go on with your life. Um, 
So my husband came back from Vietnam, uh, decided to go to dental school, was badly beaten up before uh, he left for Ohio State Dental School because he'd met up with a friend over in Newport, Kentucky, a uh, guy from Vietnam, and they had just been so obnoxious, you know, a bouncer, just beating them, I mean, just beating them both pretty badly in the face. And... Um, when we went to Columbus for the next three years, he didn't drink, and I just seemed to think that had to do with me. I mean, I was pretty sure it was as a direct result of my being patient, long-suffering, not a nag, quiet, and I thought everything was going to be just fine. Everything was just going to be fine. When he came back from dental school three years later, um, his behavior became um, really bizarre. And, and what my part is this, is that I would always match that behavior. I would always try to stay one step ahead of him, trying to figure out what he was going to do next, what he was going to say next, making sure you didn't get in his way. I mean, it was a tremendous amount of work. It's no wonder. It is no wonder it becomes so exhausting. And the big thing for me, because we had a number of kids then, was to try to keep the truth of him away from my children. I thought the best thing that I could do as a good mother was to protect my children from the reality of their father. And so what I began to do was what I was very, very good at, which was taking what was going on and repackaging it and selling it mm -hmm. as something else, as something else. Now, what happened was my husband, as a dentist, now could write himself prescription drugs, and so that's what he began to do. He began to write himself prescriptions for narcotics and um, he told me that one day he'd wrote me he wrote me a letter that's how great our communication skills had become he wrote me a letter and he handed it to me in the kitchen and when I read it you know that he was going to be arrested and thrown out of dentistry I was so th I was really almost delighted because I thought well great you know now he won't be able to get to narcotics and things will just settle down He'll get another job. Maybe he could sell, you know, maybe he could sell drugs. I mean, to, to doctors and things. Maybe, you know, he could be a medical salesman. And this will be okay. This will be great because I had no concept of the disease. But more importantly, I had no idea how it was affecting me profoundly. And, of course, my children as well. My children as well. Once my husband uh, was thrown out of dentistry, what happened then were years of uh, unemployment where he would just uh, really lay around. And that terrified me. That terrified me. Alcoholism is one thing. Unemployment terrifies me because we had a number of kids. Now, fortunately or unfortunately, depending on how you look at it, we were living at the time on his family's... His family was a compound is what it was where the brothers, you know, sisters lived, and there was a main house where his parents lived, and then this little summer house next door, which they would rent to their children as they would get married, give an opportunity to save money to build on the little, you know, on the, on the piece of property. And it sounded like a wonderful deal. But it wasn't too long before his father passed on, and um, we weren't paying any rent. Couldn't. He didn't have a job except for the furs that he sold, because he did become a, a fox hunter. And <clears throat> so that's how, you know, that's what we did for an income. He would go out and hunt fox and bring them home and hang them up by their little 
their little feet and skin them and then take the furs downtown and sell their furs. And, you know, I've said before, it's a wonderful, it's really, it is, it's a wonderful, lucrative profession. Well, it was in the 17, 1800s, but in the 1980s, you just don't, there's just not a lot of income. So it was always an issue, you know, it was always an issue, the money thing, and what are we going to do, and... But see, what I did was I always tried to make it sound like it was the most exciting life, that my life was exactly how I had planned it, that this is really what I had always aspired to, you know, living among family, raising my kids, having my husband go out and hunt. People would say to me, isn't he a dentist? I'd say, oh, no, dentistry is much too boring for a man like him. You know, he needs something much more exciting. And and so he does this, you know, he hunts. Um, that wasn't quite as hard as when he became a beekeeper. That was, that, that was a little more difficult. The vision of him walking, oh, my God, with that big hat and the netting, it was just, you know, and the kids would be like, Mom, what's Dad doing now? I'm like... You know, he's just, you know, he's a, he's a renaissance man. Anyway. Um, <clears throat> so that's the way it was. I mean, it was just living with that kind of um, outrageous behavior and trying to make sense of it constantly. I had no idea, I had no idea until I found you how much, really, how deeply I had been affected by alcoholism. Sometimes um, I go over to the prospect house and um, and just do the you know the little family thing. Although I've never, I don't think in the years that I've been doing it, I've ever really met a family member. It's usually just the men of prospect house because their fam- they've lost their families long ago. And uh, not so long ago, I was over there and I just you know tell my part of it. And uh, afterwards, one of the men came up to me and he is a big big man and he was just in tears. And he said, you know, I, I destroyed my family. I destroyed my family. And I said to him, you know, Bubba, you aren't that powerful. Because people don't. This disease is what destroys the family. And for me and for the men and women that I recover with, that's one thing that is always important for us to remember, I believe. It's a family disease, and you can't take it personally. It's the disease of alcoholism that tears apart families. And the only thing that I know that's stronger than that is there are these programs of recovery. I'm sure there might be something else out there that works, but I've never found it. I've never found it. So that's why I'm always so grateful. I'm always so grateful for the grace to have come. Um, <clears throat> So it was, you know, it's that it's that always trying to make it look like it is what it isn't, particularly with my kids. I did a lot, a lot of damage. I remember one day one of the kids found a bird that, whose wing was broken, and, um, and Rick, because he was so talented, I mean, anything that he did, when he flew jets, he flew jets like nobody. When he was a dentist, he was a painless dentist. Well, he was a painless dentist. <laughs> he was a painless dentist. But he also didn't create pain, you know. And, you know, whatever, even, even as a fox hunter, I suppose, he was a, good, he was a good hunter. He was a good shot. Everything that he did, 
So he took this little broken bird that one of the kids had found, and he and he healed this bird, and he trained the bird to come to him. I mean, he would keep little pieces of broken glass or a mirror in his pocket, and when he would flash it, wherever that little blue jay was, it would it would come out of the tree and it would land on his shoulder, and he would walk around you know, with his little vegetable garden and his things, with his little bird on his shoulder. And sometimes it would hop on the fence and it would watch him while he was growing potatoes or whatever he was into that particular time in his life. But one day when we, you know, where we lived, there was this, the, the family compound pool was right next to our house. And um, he was down there with the kids and the little bird was down there on the fence. And <clears throat> Where we lived was rather rural, although we had these encroaching suburbs coming around, these subdivisions around us. And one day he called up to me, you know, he was in the pool with the kids, and he yelled up, get rid of this barn cat. I don't know whose barn cat it was. So I'm not very good at getting rid of things. I mean, I'm just, you know, I'm like, I like harmony and balance. So I don't know how to get, how to get rid of a barn cat. So I went down and I said, uh, you know, get out of here, cat. <laughs> If you know what's good for you, get out of here. And I thought I'd chase it off, but apparently I hadn't. Or maybe it ran and then it came back. And that cat, as cats do, was just waiting under the bush for that little trained blue jay to get within eating distance, I suppose. And I'm back up in the kitchen doing dishes, and then I hear this primal scream from the pool area. And as I ran down, of course, you know, there's the little BJ, the blue jay, well, in peace, I mean, you know, he's in this cat's mouth. I mean, you know, part of him's here, part of him's here, and Rick is getting out of the water, and I think, there's going to be trouble. <laughs> I mean, there's going to be trouble. I don't know about you, but I got very good at seeing trouble and sensing it, and because it's important that I be able to do that. You develop that. And so I run down with the kids, and I did what I always did with the kids. As Rick got out of the water and went up to the house getting one of his guns, as I knew would happen, you know, I took the kids and I said, I have an idea. And this is what I would always do with my kids, and they still make fun of me today. I, would, I was always like, I have an idea. Let's make peanut butter and jelly sandwiches, and let's see who can run as fast as they can away from this house. We'll have a great time of it. I mean, I was always trying to make it sound like, this wonderful family adventure. So I said to the kids, I have an idea. Let's all hold hands and we'll sink underwater and we'll see, we'll have a tea party and we'll see who can stay at the tea party the longest. And as Rick came out that side door with that long gun over his shoulder calling, here, kitty, 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 kitty. I took my kids under. I took my kids under because I did not want them to see what was going to happen next. And then when the gun went off, you know, uh, and the kids, as usual, are like, Mom, what's he doing now? And all the little cousins on the driveway, I mean, you can almost hear them jumping on their big wheels. and What's Uncle Rick done today? I mean, you know. <clears throat> and there you are. You know, there I am one more time with all these kids around me in these wetsuits and this cat, you know, and 900 different pieces all over the yard. And, uh, you know, the kids are like... What 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 is what is that about? And there I am trying to explain why this cat had to die. I mean, you know, you I always found myself in these situations where I had to explain the unexplainable to make sense for them so they really wouldn't know, it would never sink in how absolutely crazy we were living. And not even so much to protect 
them from him. But because the last question I think you ask is, what's wrong with you? Why are you raising kids in this situation? Why would you allow your children, as a mother, as a woman, why would you allow your children to live like this? And the answer is because I was sick too. That's the answer. Because alcoholism is a family disease. And it, when it came to our door, it came for all of us. It came for all of us. It didn't stop with Rick. It got me and it got, it got my kids. And that's why I have been so blessed that when I finally got here, I came in on the coattails of four sister-in-laws in Alcoholics Anonymous. Never once did I ever feel like it was them and us, ever. And I never have felt that way since. Because when I came in, I came in with a strong sense that this is a family disease. I have one sister-in-law that says whenever she goes to an AA convention, she always goes to the Al-Anon speaker. And I always say, well, that's cool. Why, why is that? And she said, oh, it makes me so grateful I drink. <laughs> <clears throat> and that's actually what happened. What happened was one of the sisters on the driveway joined AA, and then another sister joined, and another sister joined, and another sister joined. And, uh, and then their husbands, you know, and one of which is Tom L. You know, then, then they went. You know, then they all just went. And, uh, and I have to say this, that, um, you know, they're hanging around because I got the little house by the pool, and they're coming around, and they're, and they're talking recovery. And they're talking about alcoholism being a disease that um, has been in the family for years. And at the time that they, uh, that they got sober, I was pregnant with child number seven, and I'm beginning to think, if this is, a, if this is indeed a disease that runs in families, I'm never going to get away from it. I will, never, I will never know peace. Because I always had this idea at the end of my life, because Rick was four years older than I was, and women usually outlive men by four years, I always thought at the end of my life I'd have these eight years of calm, and eight years when I wouldn't have to worry about picking up the phone and explaining to neighbors why their pet cats were never coming home again. <laughs> because Rick had this theory about cats as he would hunt at night with his new infrared glasses. He had this theory that if they were house cats and they were fed in the house, they had no right to be out in the wilds hunting his quail and his pheasant. If they were scraggly cats, they could live. But if they weren't, you know, then, then they had to die. And so how do you explain that to the Stepford wives who have now moved in in these subdivisions around me? You can't explain it. So I just didn't even answer the phone anymore. I didn't even want to answer the phone. So all these things are weighing on me, and I made a decision that, to tell you the truth, it probably would be a good idea, even though there wasn't a bone in my body that was feeling sick. It just occurred to me that perhaps I needed to go and check out, check out the Fellowship of Al-Anon. And so I went to a meeting, really, 20 years ago yesterday, on Monday night, and uh, I went way, way, way far out because I didn't want anybody tailing me. I didn't want anybody asking me, how was it? And to tell you the truth, I don't really even like group things. I really don't. I mean, I, I really like to run alone. I don't like group things. So there I am out there, and I'm uh, at a beginner's meeting, and I said to this woman, 
I don't know if my husband's an alcoholic or not. He doesn't seem to me like he drinks like an alcoholic. She said, well, let me ask you this. Has his drinking ever caused a problem in your life? And I said, well, yeah, a lot of times. And she said, well, then you're in the right place because this is a program for you. This is a program for you, and, um, and it's really not about him. It's about you. Now, that's what I heard at my first meeting. And, to tell you the truth, I've never forgotten that, that this is a meeting about me, no matter what anybody else is doing, that I need to recover from the effects of the disease of alcoholism. And she also said, you know, alcoholism is a disease that you didn't cause, you can't cure, and you can't control. I never thought I caused my husband's drinking, ever. My very first date with him, he came to my door with a little silver monogrammed cup filled with bourbon, which I thought was a very cool marine thing to do. Never, <laughs> never occurred to me that that was unusual. Never, I don't know why, just never did. And uh, so I never thought I caused it, but by God, I thought as a loving wife. As a loyal, long-suffering, loving wife, I certainly should be able to cure what was bothering him. I certainly should be able to control him. I really believed that that was my job, that that was, you know, my, my role in marriage was to fix this guy. And when I couldn't do it, I had to take all those feelings of, of anxiety, of guilt, and of deep, deep sadness and grief and just and just bury him as best I could bury him as best as I could one thing that I that that has come to me over the years in recovery is that grief that is associated with this disease um, my sponsor always says there is no inoculation Alyssa. There is no inoculation for that pain. If you have ever, I mean, I had at one point in my life had to sign custody of my oldest son over to the state. I know it was just a formality. But there was something in my heart when I had to take that step. It was very, very difficult. It's just hard. I've had two of my sons appear in front of me in shackles and in handcuffs. That's a hard, that's hard. I don't think it's my fault. I never thought what they did was personally directed towards me. I love my children, but it's it's hard to watch people that you love have to, you know, go to their knees. It's 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 difficult. But the big news for me is and always has been and the great hope is that I've never had to do it alone ever. I've never had to do it alone. I have been surrounded by men and women many of whom have gone through the same things. I go to meetings with men and women who don't know where their children are today. I go to meetings with men and women whose children are in recovery. I go to meetings with men and women who have buried children. I never, ever have to do it alone. And I'm surrounded by men and women who continue to live lives of grace and compassion and, and deep understanding and wisdom as a result of this disease. As a result of this disease, I often say that alcoholism broke my heart, and it did. But through that break in my heart, the hand of God reached in. And really, that's how I began to heal from the inside out. And that healing continues. Um, 
when I went um, to these meetings, the one thing that struck me was that I was with men and women who were acting as though they had a choice, and that was big news for me. I never believed that I had a choice. I always thought that everything that I did and everything that I said, I had to do, I had to say. I was always, always justifying, explaining, defending, either to other people or to myself in my mind. What I said to my husband was never, ever as cruel as what I constantly said to myself. What's wrong with you? Why can't you fix this? Why can't you cure this? Why can't you come up with the, you know, why can't you come up with the words that'll turn it around for him? And now I'm with men and women who are telling me it's really none of my business, that I have to take my husband and put him in the hands of a loving and compassionate God, and that I have to be about my own recovery. You are the ones that told me that I had to simply let go and let God. I had to let go and let God. And if everything seemed to fall apart, well, then everything just probably needed to fall apart before any kind of rebuilding could begin that maybe only restoration and being restored could happen when I finally and forever let go and believe that I could never be a higher power in someone else's life. My sponsor says to me always, you are not your children's higher power. And if you are, they'll never find the higher power on their own. I have seven children today who drink. I don't know if they drink a lot, if they drink too much or whatever. I have two who have been in AA at some time or another. I don't know about those things, but I say to my kids, you and God will sort that out. And I believe that. And you are the ones that have given me the freedom to love my children without strings attached. Because I believe that they will walk their own way. They never have to do it alone. But they certainly don't need me pushing, judging, critiquing, shaming. I don't need to do that. Because you've shown me by the way that you work your program, those of you both in Al-Anon and in AA, how to be the kind of woman that I believe God created me to be, how to be the kind of woman I believe that God challenges me to be and encourages me to be. And one of the the biggest ways you've shown me is what we used to call, we today we call detaching, but when I came in back in 82, we used to call it releasing with love. You have shown me how to love people without, you know, without suffocating them and allowing them to learn the lessons of their lives. And it involves oftentimes, I know, living with questions. I don't have, I don't have a lot of answers to a lot of things, but you have shown me a way to live. You have shown me a way to live through letting go and letting God and by turning my life and will over to the care of a loving and compassionate and gentle God. You know, um, <clears throat> early on in my recovery, a woman, I don't even remember who it was, but she gave me this handy little phrase, you could be right, which I have used over 20 years. To my, really, to, to the increase of my serenity, you could be right. And I used it back then when I'd come home from meetings and my husband would be up in a roar about something. And see, normally I would think that I had to set him straight. I mean, I'm the keeper of truth and justice in the house. I gotta, I gotta work this thing. But not, yeah, and you told me no, I did not. That my husband was none of my business. That his recovery was between him and his higher power. And that I had the freedom to say to him, honey, you could be right. And I, and I, for me, it became a change in attitude where I began to see that I do not have the answers. I do not have the answers. I have a little piece of what I think works for me. 
but I don't, I don't have your peace. I'm always more than willing to share what I have learned, my strength, my, my experience, my hope, but I don't have answers for you. And that's one of the greatest things. Well, every, you know, when you go around to different places, I'm sure you found this is true, every place is different. One thing I love about Cincinnati, North, I mean, this whole tri-state area, Al-Anon, is that we're pretty darn low-key. Pretty darn low-key. We don't have any queens or kings. Because I've been in places where, whoo, there's the queen. And the queen is always really scary because the queen is almost always a bully. And <clears throat> the beauty today, I was telling Sue, when I, sometimes when I, you know, go places, people will say to me, um, you know, like people who have to read will say, oh, I'm so nervous, I'm so nervous, and I'll say, what is it? And they go, oh, I have to read the steps of the meeting. I have to read the steps of the meeting. I'm so nervous. Now, Sue called me this morning at 9, and she said, tell Debbie not to worry. I'll probably get there about 5 of 11. I don't know what I'm reading, but whatever it is, I'm sure I read it before. See, now, that's what I love about Cincinnati, Alan, because, you know, it's just really kind of low-key. I was somewhere in the South once, and after I was finished, somebody came up to me, and she said, who's your sponsor? Who's your sponsor? And I said, Patty. And she said, oh, Patty from California? And I said, no, Patty from Newtown. <laughs> she said, oh, who's her sponsor? Who's her sponsor? I mean, there's like this hierarchy for some people. Who's her sponsor? Who's her sponsor? And what I wanted to say, but I didn't, but I will one day, was Lois Wilson. <laughs> Lois, Lois effing Wilson is her sponsor. What do you think of that? How hot am I? I mean... You know, that's what's great about Cincinnati, is that uh, my experience is we're just all exactly how we're supposed to be. We're just all equals. You know, the, the, the scepter of the prince, the staff of the beggar, we leave them at the door when we come into these meetings, and we are just men and women who are trying as best we can, one day at a time, in this wonderful fellowship, to, to live lives of peace and grace and compassion and gentleness with one another. Because it can get rough. It can get rough. Alcoholism can be nasty. And life can be, life can be, life can be brutal. Life can be brutal. But we are asked to live in the world as it is, not as we would have it. And that's what you have allowed me to do by showing me how you work these steps. Nothing really changed for me until I took the fourth step, until I could really take a look at my part in all of this. And we say in our literature that for Al in Al-Anon, it is, you know, the four M's, mothering, martyrdom, manipulation, and managing. Those are the ones that get us. In our daily reading the other day, I saw perfectionism, paralysis, and I can't think of it. Paralysis, perfectionism, and probably procrastination. Thank you, Janie. Yeah. That's what we do. I mean, it's just, it becomes for me huge obstacles in my way of becoming, becoming who, you have, who you believe that I can be. Who you believe I can be. We were doing, Debbie and I were doing a, a beginner's meeting there not so long ago, really just a short time ago, and this woman came in and she said, I don't know what's wrong with me. I know he's a hopeless drunk, but I don't know what's wrong with me. He passed out on the kitchen floor and all I wanted to do was kick him in the head. We're like, hey, you're in the right place. Yeah. That's it. You keep coming back. Because that's what happens to us, you know? We become unreasonable without knowing it. Although I did become, I knew I was becoming unreasonable. Our thinking becomes confused and our perceptions distorted. 
and I began to take everything personally. And you were the ones that said, don't, you know, you've got you to gotta believe that this is not a bad guy. This is just a sick guy. This is a sick guy. This is a disease that happens to all of us. And so it was very important for me to take a fourth step and become responsible for my actions and my attitude and my behavior. And it wasn't about anybody else. I had to place him in the hands of a loving God and be about my own recovery. Take responsibility for who, for what I was doing. And the fifth step for me was and always will be about self-forgiveness. It's about understanding. My sponsor has this wonderful line, lay that at the feet of alcoholism. Lay that at the feet of alcoholism. You are enough for today. Lay that at the feet of alcoholism. That's how the disease works on us. And the really scary thing about it is, is that unlike people that drink too much and pass out in front of you, I was so good at looking good that I could have been missed, that I could have been missed. You wouldn't have missed my husband. Nobody missed him. He was not to be missed. But I, I was the one people were saying, oh, how do you do it? Oh, you must be so brave. You must be so courageous. How do you do it? That's the kiss of death for me. That's the kiss of death for me. Because I'll never get help. I'll never get help. You are the ones that began really to point out to me that my only hope was in understanding how deeply I'd been affected by this disease. And that I really had to become entirely ready to have God remove defects of character. And that's what you, you through your shining example, You've made me willing to become to become uh, to become humble enough to ask a power greater than myself to allow me to be that kind of woman that I that I want to be. When I sponsor women, that generally is just how I do it. I wouldn't dream of giving another person advice. I wouldn't dream of it because I don't have somebody else's answers. But I'm certainly willing to ask questions. What kind of mother do you want to be? What kind of wife do you want to be? What kind of lover do you want to be? What kind of friend do you want to be? Who is it that you want to be? And when you have that vision that I believe we receive in these rooms, then you can begin to act like her. You can begin to act like her. Because she's there. She's there. I have always been convinced one of the most troubling things for me when I was living, you know, before recovery was... I just couldn't believe that the loving God that I had grown up with could want me to live like this. I used to go out on that hill that overlooked the Ohio River in the hills of Kentucky. And I used to say, God, this can't be your will for me. And it certainly can't be your will for these seven children. It can't be. It can't be. Because I believe that I was born with a memory, a memory of a God who really wanted me to be happy, joyous, and free. And I knew this just couldn't be, this just couldn't be right, not forever, not forever. And so you are the ones who told me the most powerful amends I could ever make to my husband and my children was to get to meetings and to get better. Um, that was really the most powerful thing that I could do, and so I believed you, and so I just got to as many meetings as I could, and when I couldn't get to meetings, I got tapes, and I would peel potatoes and fold diapers and listen to tapes, and I would just do everything that I could do. I would get to open AA meetings when I could. And I would always say, Rick, I'm going, you know, Michelle and Lou are speaking out in Indianale. You want to come? No. Okay, I'll be back in about an hour and a half. You were the ones that taught me, take action, let go of the results. Have your hand out there, offer it, 
and and that's that's your obligation. Let go of the results. Let go of the results. I'd been in Al-Anon uh, just over three years. Um, my husband had tried AA. It just scared him to death. Just scared him to death. The poor thing. And um, but I was doing all right. You know, things were changing in our house because because my attitude was changing, because my perceptions were getting clearer, my thinking was getting a little healthier. Things were beginning to change in our relationship. My husband had a hobby of flying a gyrocopter. When he got out of the service, a lot of the guys that he flew with were going over, where last station was Georgia, were going over to Atlanta and hiring on with Delta. He never had an interest in flying the big jets. He said they were, you know, getting to be computerized. It was like driving a bus. He liked, he liked those, you know, those little phantom jets. That's what he liked. He liked danger. He liked scary stuff. And uh, so he built this little helicopter. It's called a gyrocopter. It's just like a lawn chair with a blade and a little motor. And he used to fly that a lot. And uh, he just uh, made me so mad because I was left with a house full of kids and he'd be off flying every weekend, you know, and I'd be left with kids hanging all over me and, you know, carcasses of fox lined up along the breezeway, steel leg hold traps. And it was nuts, but you're the ones that said to me, if you know, if he gets any peace out of that, why would you want to take that away from him? Why would you want to take that away from him? So my attitude about that changed. And when Memorial Day weekend, many years ago, many years ago, he went out to fly, and it was a gorgeous day like today. And as he left, I said to him, because you allowed me the words, I said to him, Rick, you have a beautiful day to fly. Have a ball. And those are the last words I ever spoke to my husband. Because two hours later, I was coming up the driveway with a station wagon full of kids, followed by um, Hamilton County Sheriff's car. And when I got to the house, the, ki- uh, the guy said to me, why don't you send the kids inside? So Julie, my oldest, you know, hauled all the kids that were there into the house, and he told me that uh, Rick had, had crashed and died. And what was touching and still remains touching to me as I tell the story is that a few minutes later, his mother, who was his, you know, his father had died, his mother came up in her new car right behind us, and she pulled over in front of her house, and she saw the police there, and, and they walked over to her. Uh, one of them did and told her the news, and uh, she came over to me, and she was not well then, but she came over to me with her arms outstretched, and she said to me as she held me in her arms, Thank God he's out of his pain. And I'll never forget her saying that because... You know, as her oldest boy, you know, if you have an oldest boy, there's just something about that bond. And for her to be able to say that, it just brought me great comfort. And it allowed me to know that I don't know why my, you know, of all those kids in that family, he was not able to take to that program like the others did. But that's not my, that's not my answer. I mean, I I, I know today that he is in the arms of a loving and compassionate God. And the peace that eluded him while he was alive, he has now. And most days, that's enough for me. You know, once my husband died, there's seven kids. The oldest one was 14, and he immediately, you know, his drinking and pot smoking increased. and, And things got crazy for a number of years. But to tell you the truth, they didn't get really too crazy because I stayed very close to the program, because I stayed in constant contact with the sponsor, because I hung out with you guys, and because you continued to tell me that um, the most powerful thing I could do for any of my children was to continue to recover. And so I did. 
and and my kids um, have done a wonderful. You know, I wouldn't change a hair on any one of those kids' head. I just wouldn't. I would not change anything about them. They are wonderfully intense, great kids. I I you are the ones that have shown me the difference between parenting and enabling. You've shown me the importance of taking action and letting go of the results. One time there's a woman out from out of California who runs a place for adolescents. She's in AA. And I happened to be with her once, and she said to me that she was given a talk to parents out in Las Vegas about um, the adolescence and um, sobriety or recovery and the secret of it. And I was like... Because I had the time, I had this number six child, this, cra- oh my God, this, cra- you know, died, dreadlocks, gold. I mean, always in trouble, 2020 police. I mean, it's just always. Um, but just one day at a time, it doesn't seem so bad. So I said to her, well, what is the secret? What is the secret to, to the adolescence? And she said, the secret is that teenage behavior and alcoholic behavior look so much alike. You probably, you know, all you can do is parent your kids and take small actions to interrupt their drinking and hope that they stay alive long enough to get to AA. And when she said that to me, everything changed for me because I began to see parenting as just a way of taking actions and not, and not feeling like everything that I had to do had to be the final answer. You know what I mean? The final answer. And so it was, it really for me became, one of my kids says to me today, oh mother, how'd you stand this? How? And my own mother's like, I would be in a mental institution. You know, every time a kid would have to go to this rehab or that rehab, she would, rehab, she'd always just say, just crack that kid in the head. You know, just, I mean, that's her answer for everything. Just crack that kid in the head. <clears throat> but the answer is because I stayed close to you, because you are the ones that allowed me to see that, you know, living one day at a time, practicing these principles as a parent was the way to go. Loving my children and yet not taking what they did and what they said personally. I mean, if I could tell you the number of times, and I don't even want to, and a lot of you know it because you were there with me, that I've been on the phone and said, I gotta go, the police are here. You know, and then you go, and there you is, whatever, you know, or those of you that went with me, you know, to 2020 to, you know, sign up at incorrigibility, those, you know, of, who have called me and I told you where to park your car and, you know, where you get the key to put your purse when you go visit them. I mean, it's just this network of people who are with you one day at a time through it all. My, one of my children, uh, well, I don't. It, whatever. They're they're just exactly where they're supposed to be today, and I I am just so grateful for them. They have kept me humble. They've ha- they've kept me on my knees in prayer, and they have filled me with gratitude. I go to a lot of meetings because and for because I leak. I mean, I one woman said, you know, I got to go to meetings because I leak. It's so true. I go to meetings because I leak. Because all the good stuff that I hear, I don't seem to be able to hold on to for a long period of time. And so even though my mother always says, why do you keep going to those meetings? You know, Rick is dead. I always say, Mom, I keep going to those meetings because I'm not. Because I leak. I leak. And I believe that it's important to stay very close. I believe, I think all of us are invited into a, into a, 
intimate relationship with the God of our understanding. And I got my invitation through alcoholism. I got my invitation through alcoholism. And you are the ones that teach me what it means to be together in the midst of suffering and in the midst of great joy, that we are in it together and that we often are, you know, we often are God to one another in the way that we minister to one another, in the way that we are there for one another, in the way that we walk this path for one another. Uh, not so long ago, an older woman came to our meeting and she was, uh, after the meeting, she said to me, I don't know if I'm supposed to be in the right place or not. Um, my son is, you know, 60 years old. And I said, oh, my God, you know, there's tons of us here. We're, we're here for children. We're, we seem to be here for a lot of reasons, but we're all really here for ourselves. And she said, well, how long have you been coming? I said, well, I've been coming for like 18 and a half years. And she said to me, is it that you just don't get it? <laughs> <clears throat> I was going to say to her, no, it's because I leak, but I decided that she wouldn't get that one. So, anyway, just in closing, I will say this, that uh, one of my kids, when they graduated from college, the, the, the speaker at the closing ceremony was telling us all that her son had just learned the Lord's Prayer, and he was so excited when he came home from school to repeat it to her. And she said, all right, you know, let's hear it. And he said... Our Father, who art in heaven, how'd you know my name? <laughs> and when I heard that, I thought, oh, isn't, that just, isn't that just the way it is? Our Father, who art in heaven, how did you know my name? How did you know exactly what I needed? How did you know where I should be just when I should be there? How did you know that today as I stand before you, Everything that I ever really wanted in my life, I have today. Everything that I have, I want. And I, and I really want for nothing. And I'm no fool. I know how life can be. But I know one thing, that I will always have you. And through you, I will always have a loving and compassionate God. And for that today, I am most grateful. Thank you.